Hey everyone, we have uh, an interesting new thing going on with the show this week, wherein a company has bought out our ad reads for the entire show. Were you aware of this, Eric? Uh, I was, you know, I, I am pretty plugged into our business sometimes. That's true. Occasionally. You were, you were, you were in this meeting. I'm <laughs> remembering. But um, <laughs> last week we had uh, a filmmaker by the name of Roxanne Benjamin on the show, and she came in and killed it with uh, a, a really cool uh, episode about Pet Cemetery 2. And it just so happens that the company behind her new movie, There's Something Wrong with the Children, uh, has bought out all of our ad spaces on this episode. So... We're going to be talking about <laughs> there's something wrong with the children. The 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 movie that we recommended to you last week somewhat heavily during the uh, the, the ad reads for for this particular episode. Eric, what do people need to know about there's something wrong with the children? Well, this is the latest film from Blumhouse Productions. Uh, Roxanne mm -hmm. Benjamin directs the hell out of it. It's a movie that Scott and I both like, and it's a movie you can see uh, wherever you get your VOD titles now. This is an on-demand, so it's not one of those you know, streaming on an obscure streamer. Uh, as of yet, if you want to see this movie, and you damn well should, it's a really good movie, uh, you need to pay for it. So go find yeah. it on VOD, and you know wherever you get your VOD, that's where you're going to find this movie. A lot of fun, uh, has a great cast, a great premise. It's about two couples. They go out to the, the woods on a vacation. One of the couples has kids. The other one doesn't. Uh, the, the couple that does not is left in charge of the children overnight. And one thing leads to another. And those kids, uh, they get pretty fucked up, right? Like they, yeah. um, they become wrong. Uh, just to use the parlance of the title. Is yeah, that fair? I was going to say the title might might tip the hat that there is something wrong with the children, and yes. uh, and yeah, there damn well is something wrong with the children. And as you'd expect, uh, things don't go <laughs> very well for the uh, grown ups involved in this. And uh, you know, you love to see evil kids, and we love to see evil kids. Stephen King loves evil kids. This is the man who wrote Children of the Corn for God's yes. sake. So. It is a good fit for the show, and we do appreciate Blumhouse Productions coming in and sponsoring this entire episode. And uh, yeah, we'll be back in the mid-roll to talk to you a little bit more about There's Something Wrong with the Children and uh, its particular tie to Stephen King himself. Yes, indeed. Uh, until then, I have the Fangoria ad read for you. Uh, this runs every week. I am not tired of saying it, and I'm glad that the script has not changed. <laughs> In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever. Each issue brings you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head on over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, please make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And with all that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. He's gonna break! Bad love! Bad love! Sir! Ah! Advise for to see a dead body. Well, sometimes, that is better. 
Hello, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. This week's guest is one of our favorite working filmmakers, and we are excited to finally have him on the show. He's a massively talented dude who's collaborated with Edgar Wright, Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, many more. He's the filmmaker behind 2011's excellent Attack the Block and 2019's The Kid Who Would Be King, the co-writer of The Adventures of Tintin, and starting on January 27th, the writer slash director of Netflix's highly anticipated Lockwood & Co. Today, he's here to talk about one of our favorite King novels, 1981's Cujo, and its 1983 feature film adaptation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Joe Cornish. Joe, how are you doing today? Hey, thanks a lot, guys. What a great introduction. I appreciate that. We can just go home now. Like, it's all yeah. done. I'm going yeah. to have to order. downhill from here. Gonna just say I like Cujo, a... and we can wrap this whole thing up. Boom, done. going to have to order <laughs> a bigger tombstone to have all that carved into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> have so, you been holding up? I'm good, man. Yeah, really good. Uh, we, we, yeah, we've, uh, we've delivered our show to Netflix, and so I'm starting the promotional uh, business. And very excited to be on your podcast. I'm a fan of this podcast and a big fan of Stephen King and a huge Fangoria fan. So, um, oh, that's you cool know, to I'm ready thing. to go. Yeah, we check all the boxes for you, baby. This is great. Definitely. <laughs> well, we've been fans of yours for a, a very, very long time. Uh, I, I was at that screening at South by Southwest of Attack mm-hmm. the Block. No way. Um, and there's something that happens at film festivals that uh, one of the reasons I love going to film festivals is you see a movie like attack the block and it just feels like you know a a two-ton weight was just dropped on the audience where they go bam like here's you know here's an exciting new actor here's an exciting new you know uh director i don't know just like it expands the horizon i guess of what cinema can be when you have those moments and when you have have a movie like attack the block play at a festival like south by like where the austin crowd is just kind of i don't know born and bred to love that kind of movie it mm. it makes for um you know i don't know there's this uh tangible feeling you can get in those screenings where where it's unlike you know it's like going to a sporting event i guess is the best way i can put it unless like going to your average multiplex do you remember that that uh, uh that era that that weekend of of attack i Block? do yeah absolutely i i remember it differently because i was terrified uh we you know i when you you probably know when you finish a movie you it's it's like a kind of swarm of bees in your head it's full of all sorts of um things that you think you could have done better and you you can't really experience it as as a film it's just this huge cluster of events in your life that are kind of triggered by different shots and different moments so i couldn't be in the room i i remember sitting outside in the corridor literally curled up in a little ball on the floor and there was a window in the door that was like a kind of porthole on a ship. Mm-hmm. And I could hear laughter and I could hear reactions. And I really wasn't sure whether people were laughing with the film or at the film. Yeah. Uh, and it was only really some, somebody came out, I think, and said, Joe, like, listen to that. And, uh, and then I realized people were digging it. And then at the end, when it, the reaction at the end was was incredible but it was it was yeah like like I'd, I'd experienced some of that because i was with edgar and simon and nick when they promoted hot fuzz around mm. america yeah uh, edgar and i were writing Ant-Man at the time and i traveled around the states on the promotional tour for that and they visited a bunch of independent theaters so i had very much experienced the kind of 
home crowd in the States for genre movies, which is so passionate and enthusiastic and welcoming. And when I realized that I was getting a little taste of that, it was very exciting. And Edgar wasn't even with me. I know. Not in a bad way, but you know, I couldn't go, oh, this is all for Edgar. Right. Uh, that was all know, for so you, man. Really, yeah, that was great. They loved you. I, I thought I was maybe the last person to interview you before that screening. Huh. If, if it was the same day, because uh, I remember it was you, Edgar and Nick Frost were grouped together. Right. And they had told me beforehand, like, listen, if the re- interview runs long, they've got to get to this screening. Uh, would you be open to just riding over in the van to finish up questions if you have huh. to? And I was like, yeah, of course. But uh, my predominant memory of that is when I walked into the room, they introduced me. They said, uh, this is Scott Wampler from Collider or whoever I was working for at the time. And uh, you guys immediately latched onto my, my last name. Oh my God. And Nick was like, uh, what is a Wampler? Like, what does that sound like? And, and Edgar's like, that's that's a weapon you use to fight the Incredible Hulk, like the Wampler 9000. <laughs> and, and and that was like the first few minutes of the interview. I'll never forget it. It was so goddamn funny. And uh, I I kind of feel like I remember you you being a little nervous about heading to that screening at that time. I'm sure, yeah. Like those guys were, um, yeah, they were very, at that point, they were very relaxed and experienced at that kind of thing. And I, I was used to being right. behind a camera filming them. And I made a documentary for the Blu-ray of Hot Fuzz called uh, The Fuzzball Rally. Mm-hmm. It's like an hour documentary that I shot with uh, Edgar and Nick and Simon on the promotional trail for Hot Fuzz. And by putting it on that Blu-ray, the rating went in the UK from 15 to 18 because because <laughs> <laughs> the contents of that documentary is so filthy and uh, <laughs> stupid that it actually lifted... The hot, the hot fuzz rating up by uh, three years. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hell of a legacy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, quite an <laughs> achievement. <laughs> and you so make the Cornetto you... boys even dirtier. <laughs> it's something Nick says about farting and nuns, I think. Actually, that's just the list of it. <laughs> I was going to say, you see that on Sesame Street these days. So Right, right. Yeah, I haven't watched it in a while. I, it, also... Also, uh, flushing cakes yeah, down in, hotel in toilets. toilets. Yeah, I yeah, remember and that. And then, like, uh, some hash cookies we got, I think, in Dallas. Uh, anyway, it's the kind of thing that just wouldn't be allowed these days, that was allowed in the early noughties. It <laughs> <that laughs> is captured for pros- posterity. It looks like you were brought on to Lockwood & Co. Um, in 2020. Is that correct? Yeah, that's about right. I think like we post-produced last year, 2022, we shot in 2021. So we were writing and developing in 2020, but we'd actually been pursuing the books a lot longer than that. Like right after Attack the Block, the first book was published and, uh, you know, me and Naira and Rachel Pryor, who, who together with Edgar, we formed this company called Complete Fiction Pictures. And um, we, we became aware of the book's like 10 years ago, I guess, in about 2013 when the first one was published. And we tried to option it, but a big studio uh, snapped it up and 
tried to develop it as a feature film, but then it went nowhere and we went off to do other things. And and then, you know, 10 years later when we'd formed this company and we were, we were looking for material to make a TV show out of, that we realized there were now five books and the movie version had never happened. And and we thought, well, this will be much better as a, as a TV show than trying to cram it all into right, a movie. Right. So while I was in post on The Kid Who Would Be King, I called up Jonathan Stroud, the author, and, and sweet-talked him <laughs> and got hold of the books. And then we sweet-talked Netflix. There's a lot of sweet-talk. And, yeah, <laughs> now here we are with the, with the show that uh, – yeah, the, the show that's coming out on it, Friday as we speak. Yeah. So this is basically what you did during the pandemic. That is correct. I was very lucky mm. to have a lovely meaty job to be yeah. doing all through that period. Yeah, that's very true. And you know, the thing I'm really proud of is you watch some movies that are coming out about now and you can kind of tell they're COVID productions, either right. because of the scale. Right. Uh, some, there's one movie where apparently you can see the indentation of the elastic on somebody's cheek oh, <laughs> i forget what it is but somebody was writing about it you can see that they've just taken their mask off before the before the direct right. action but i think lockwood and co is not that you know it's it's super busy it's got thousands of extras and big action sequences and and there is nothing in it that would indicate that it was shot under those pretty difficult circumstances mm-hmm. and certainly no compromises made because of them because mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I was able. You know, uh, Netflix was uh, kind enough to throw on a preview uh, access, which is a whole crazy process, by the way. I don't yeah. know, Scott, if you've ever had to do that. I've had to do it for movies where it's like you get it just shows up in like a special bar on your Netflix account where you go, oh, here you have access to this, but then you have to enter in like a pin that you you create through yeah. the media Netflix yeah. thing. And I've had to do that with movies where it's great. You do that once and you watch the movie, uh, but they do it for, for your show. I got uh, I, I got about half of the show watched before doing this, and I, I'm really digging it so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but every cool. single episode <laughs> I had to, instead of the, the pop-up, it's like, are you still watching or whatever? It's like, you need to enter in this pin or like your TV's going to self-destruct. Yeah. I had you know, to do the same thing. thing, but I know I re- I know I I now know my pin. That's that's true. <laughs> I, I think that's another number now etched in my brain as well, yeah. uh, which is good because I had to reset it because I didn't remember. I couldn't cool. remember what the fuck it was Man. before. Sounded um, like you worked hard to watch it, so I appreciate. I that. did. I did. I, I yeah. I toiled away in the you the streaming coal so mines to, to watch that. Uh, but yeah, I th- this story has such a great hook that like, like as you describe it the process of making it i'm, I'm shocked that uh, it hadn't happened before because it's essentially like somebody said let's uh take like a, a young adult ghostbusters and and kind of set it in in the uk right uh yeah. and the 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 log line is so i don't know it's just it's so built for, for you know a, an adaptation of some sort so it's you know it's it's a world in which paranormal stuff has happened and ghosts have shown up and kids are the only ones that can really deal with it because you kind of age out of the talents of being able to see what's going on but these ghosts are fucking killing anybody they touch yeah uh it it is it's like right away you go okay i want to see that like it, it just there there's an edge to it that takes it out of the the young adult realm but it has kind of all the appeal of the kind of young adult style characters i don't know how to describe it but like i was really pleasantly surprised especially when the f-bomb started dropping and and stuff where i'm just like oh this isn't just your your typical 
um, kind of cynical young adult fair, you know? Yeah. No, we, we, we really approached it. We didn't like, I do not like the term YA cause you know, it just immediately associates you with a million other things. And right. mm-hmm. we treated this very much as its own thing. And, and, and in everything I do, even though maybe the young people are protagonists, I just approach it like it's grown up drama. Cause there's nothing, there's nothing lesser about the, the, the emotions and the, and, 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 you know, what life feels like when you're younger, even, you know, in many ways it's kind of more intense than it is when you're older right. and you get your bearings a bit, a bit better. So yeah, we treated it like adult drama and, 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 you know, the, it's, it's older teenagers who are running this agency and um, it's such a brilliant idea. You know, the idea that ghosts can kill you by touching you because, right. because in most other supernatural fiction, you are scared by the ghost or it, possesses your daughter or sucks you into the TV or throws shit at you. Um, Or maybe spends uh, 20 minutes learning how to uh, uh, flick a soda cannon through via a kindly subway ghost. Yeah. (laughs) Which is fantastic. And in a way there's something brilliant about, you know, the great ghost stories uh, uh, capitalize on those limitations. You know, if it's, if it's that movie, the innocence, the Jack Clayton Mm. movie from the, yeah, from the late sixties where everything in that movie could be interpreted as a genuine real physical event. But when seen through the eyes of, of the governess, it becomes supernatural, you know, is she imagining, imagining it or isn't she, you know, even there's elements of that in a bunch of Stephen King's works where depending on which character you're, which perspective you're in, it, it could just be explained away rationally, or it could be supernatural. So, so, that's one way of looking at things, but I don't, I can't think of any other work where there's this basic notion, almost like biological notion as if ghosts were a real science that the ectoplasm is lethally toxic. And if this thing touches you, you're dead, like a kind of, uh, killer supernatural jellyfish. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, and so it just changes the dynamic of the whole thing. It turns it into a, uh, 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 an action adventure story, and, and and then when you come up with the secondary idea that, that 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 metal can repel ghosts, not destroy them, but kind of disperse them, then you have the the idea that psychic kids can 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 combat ghosts with swords. And I don't know, it's just this this quite simple little cluster of very straightforward ideas applied to a familiar world and and kind of a familiar set of rules that we already know about ghosts that kind of brings it into a different genre that I thought was really, uh, really cool. Right. Well, and it, it makes sense too that there is that weird edge to it because this whole thing's predicated on adults can't do this. Right. Yeah. So here's this thing that's super deadly can kill you. It's deadly and scary because there are ghosts. Right. Uh, and there's all these tiers of ghosts of, of like how deadly and, and uh, uh, threatening they are. Uh, and how are we going to deal with it? It's going to all be, tweens you know tweens or, or late teens right it's gonna be our young which i guess you could also you know kind of throw in uh if this was a stephen king story i i, I would have probably pointed that out as some sort of allegory for for uh drafting and you know and, uh-huh. and sending, sending the young kids <laughs> in, off to in, war and in, stuff. in britain it feels very dickensian you know it mm, feels like right. uh, it feels like you know industrial era britain or like victorian edwardian britain where kids were shoved up chimneys as chimney sweeps and you know, I mean, they're small already. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, they do fit, and it's a convenient yeah. and cheap way to clean your chimney. <laughs> but, you know, some might say it's not particularly healthy for the 
for the kids. But yeah, that's that's kind of what it, the social structure in the books evokes in the UK. Right. But yeah, there's definitely an element of um, conscription uh, hmm. if you're talented, and also an, a big element of exploitation of older generations exploiting young people to fix their problems. You know, which also no, is sure. quite a contemporary situation, maybe. Oh. <laughs> well, we think people are really going to dig the show. And, um, you know, congrats on, on getting it made, particularly during such a, a tough period of time. Thank you. know, you. where not a lot of things were getting made. want to move on to the Stephen King stuff in just a second. But I would, it, it, you know, I'll be screamed at by our listeners if I don't ask. Uh, are there any updates on Attack the Block 2? It's been about two years since we announced, and I, I think... Yeah, are. yeah. It's that thing where I wish we could have just started it in secret, but the second anybody hears anything, somebody publishes right. something. <laughs> um, and, you know, the nice thing about the first movie is nobody was expecting it. Nobody knew who John was or who, or who mm-hmm. I was, you know, certainly outside of UK comedy circles. Um, so, uh, and, and we put a lot of work into the first one. We did a... You know, obviously, I can make up stuff about aliens quite easily, but 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 the other stuff, the the the, the aspects of reality that we that, that that we folded the fantasy into, we did a lot of research for, and so we are currently doing that same thing. We have a we have a very detailed treatment and a, a storyline we're very very excited about. When I say we, me and John Boyega, who I'm co-producing the you know my company Complete Fiction and John's company Upper Room, we're co-producing it, and uh, John and I are consulting very closely on the story. So we have the storyline and now we're doing all the research to make sure we get it right. And also to, 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 you know, research is such a great way of expanding a story in a, in a, in in a, in a convincing, incredible way. Mm-hmm. So this very afternoon I was, I just spent two hours with somebody whose life intersects with one element of the story, uh, interviewing them and I will go home and transcribe that and, so we're, we're, we're doing our due diligence and building the screenplay and really taking the same amount of care that we took with the, with the first one because um, we want to do it right. But we're very, very quietly confident and excited about, uh, ab- about what we've got because, you know, we think about Alien and Aliens and uh, Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 mm. and we want to do, you know, have, we want to take a shot at doing our you know, version of what people did for those first movies, you know? Well, that's really exciting to hear. I'm so glad y'all are still working on it. You know, sometimes you'll hear projects get announced and then nothing ever happens with them and it's just kind of crushing. So I'm really hyped to hear that y'all are still working on it. And in fact, I just revisited the original the other day and it plays like gangbusters. That thing hasn't aged a single day since it came out. So cool. Thank you. Very excited to see whatever y'all come up with. Uh, this time around. No pressure, of course. <laughs> um, so uh, I guess let's start here. What is um, what is your Stephen King origin story, Joe? Well, I am a child of the 80s. Mm-hmm. So I, what is my, I think my first encounter with Stephen King was as a little kid coming down uh, waking up in the night, coming down, uh, going to, into the front room of my house where my mum and dad were watching TV and they were watching uh, a, a, a film review show in the UK, a very famous BBC weekly film review show. And, and on that show was a clip of The Shining. Mm. And uh, mm. so I, and it, what, what, when was The Shining? 80, 80? 1980 was. 1980. Shining. Okay. So this would have been 1980. So I would have been 11. 
and it looked completely terrifying. I didn't know what the hell it was. And my parents said, Joe, go back to bed. <laughs> I went back to bed. I can't remember what the, what the clip it was. I think it was the what was the clip circulating for The Shining? Was was it um, Jack Torrance with the axe smashing in the? I think that Probably. was one of the clips that yeah. was released as promo, uh, which is a pretty intense moment to stumble on on TV as an eleven. <laughs> right. And then I remember someone at school coming in with a copy of the book with the yellow jacket and the kind right. of black pixelated image on the front, which is a really strike, you know, it has the same colors as a wasp. So right. it looked like a yeah. dangerous object that could hurt you if you touched it. The next thing that would happen is that I, I realized you could buy, I realized there was no censorship on books, right? Yeah. So, so, so movies are controlled. Uh, VHS hasn't happened yet, but horror books, anybody can buy them. Mm-hmm. So I started buying yeah. horror books at like uh, yard sales and um, secondhand stores. And uh, I bought a bunch of James Herbert. Do you know James Herbert? James Herbert is kind of the mm-hmm. British Stephen King. He wrote the, the the Fog, which is not the Carpenter book, but but he had these books like The Fog and The Rats and all these. So he's a big, famous British horror writer who mm. is our equivalent of Stephen King. Not as prolific uh, but certainly at that time in, in the late 70s, 80s, was very high profile. I believe but, uh, Matthew Holness. Uh, exactly. That's him, where Garth he was on Marenghi. The show. Yeah. Uh, uh, Garth Marenghi's, that's where a lot of that stuff. He's done this show, has he? Yes. He did? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I have to listen to that. That's brilliant. That show what is so he, good. That was an he did the dark half. That was like one yeah. of our... That was probably within our wow. first few months of operation. So no promises on the show being as fine-tuned as it is today. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> it's great. some of I those mean, early episodes, and I'm like, Jesus Christ. I, w- no, I man, wish I'm people listen. would know. That sounds great. He's, he, that, and that's, you know, if your listeners don't know it, that show, uh, Garth Marenghi's Dark, Dark Place, is, is, is phenomenal. And he, oh, he yeah. just wrote a book, in fact. He, um, yeah. he wrote a kind of spoof book. Yeah, yeah I've been listening to the audio book of it, actually. Yeah. I, there you I, go. I tr- I tried to get, I tried really hard to get him on the show as Merengue to promote the book when it came out. Oh and man, just that would be quite, sort of, an, quite an Olympic session for him. Yeah, <laughs> like, character. Well, he did a few of them, but it was clear that you know they were they were probably targeting uh, they were probably probably targeting uh, more uh, podcasts that were based right. overseas. You know, right? But yeah. um, I've I've. I've been in touch with that guy for for the last few years as I, I love that horror movie he made a uh, possum and I was a oh, yeah. big Garth Marenghi fan from way back in the day. He's, he's a delight. I love that dude. Yeah. He's a great guy. Very, very talented. Indeed. Uh, anyway. So, so those James Herbert novels, like, and, and uh, I read one called the fog and that really fucked me up. I was just some terrible things happening in that to put in my tiny brain mm-hmm. <laughs> at that age. And so then I got hold of Pet Cemetery. I think was the first Stephen King novel I wrote. And as a, as you know, we had a pet cat. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's like a drug, isn't it? It's like discovering a drug because he writes with such clarity. And the way you know, I'm sure many people have said this before, but the way he uses capitalization. And the way he actually uses the size of the font on the page mm-hmm. and the way actually turning a page and seeing the layout of the page can actually be as impactful as the words on the page mm-hmm. um, and how grounded everything he does is. And there's a thing when you start reading 
novels as a child. I was a big, do you know an, an author called Betsy Byars? I'm not I was familiar. a big fan of her. I, she might have faded into, uh, into obscurity now, but I was a big fan of her stuff. But there's a thing where, where you read a novel and you think, and you're reading the interior lives of characters. And as a child, you've never really encountered somebody expressing what's going on in their head. Do you know mm. what I mean? Right. Yeah. And when you, and it's just like a sort of psychological window opening. And then, so anyway, I don't know, as, as a kid, you, you, uh, particularly with King's work, it's so clear and so accessible, usually in his setups, particularly those 80s books mm-hmm. that are usually set, you know, in some kind of version of a, of, of a nuclear family or a family that's fractured somehow. Uh, that when the horror starts happening, holy shit, you know, it really, to a young mind who hasn't encountered, who hasn't been allowed to watch horror movies, who hasn't been allowed to encounter that strength of material in any other medium before, in fact, who's been actively protected from it. Hmm. Uh, those books are, are like incredibly compulsive and and hardcore. And then I just ripped through a bunch of them, you know. Um, I think I might have read The Shining Next and Christine. And and then all those movies were coming along. You know, the movies right. were being were being uh, uh, made a couple of years out from the books. Right? They would be in the in that '80s period. They would be snapped up, and like two, three years later, you know, you'd read it. Then the next thing you'd see was the Fangoria article, <laughs> <laughs> right? All the like gore moments, and you and especially in the UK because you've got to remember in the UK there's like a six seven month delay between a movie being released in the States and a movie being released in the, in the UK. So the Fangoria article will come out or the Starburst article, and then you'll have to wait like a year and a half to see the movie. So oh, you're probably so rereading wild. the book and getting so hyped for the, for the movie to come out. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so there you go. So, and I have to confess, I have never read the novel of Cujo. Um, Interesting. But the film made a big impact on me because... It was the first Certificate X film. Uh, I don't know whether that means anything to you, the British rating system, but that was the equivalent of an of, of an eighty. You had to be eighteen or over to right. see. Yeah, and I would have seen it when I was about fourteen, and it was the first time I snuck into uh, a film that legally I shouldn't be watching. So there's Maybe like I'd a sense of danger, you know, and very much you're doing something wrong. Transgressive, uh, and. I'd been to see a double A film. And so double A was 15 and over. And in fact, the first double A film I'd seen was by the same director, Lewis T called Alleg- you know, Alligator. Yeah. 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 Alligator's great. Fuck yeah. So is. I saw Alligator on my own and I felt dirty and wrong. <laughs> and man, did that film feel like it delivered, you know, the massacre at the wedding at the end. Hmm. But then I remember, in fact, it felt so kind of naughty that I went to a cinema that was not in my neighborhood. I traveled to a different neighborhood in case I was caught (laughs) or in case somebody saw me going to see it. (laughs) So I snuck into this cinema and also in the, you know, in the UK we have adverts before the movie always have that like, like 10, 15 minutes of adverts, but before an X movie, there were adult adverts for cigarettes and alcohol, which I'd never (laughs) encountered before. And also back in those days, you could smoke in the cinema. There would be a smoking section and a non-smoking section. So I'm in this super adult environment of cigarette smoke. And I'm watching these adverts. Plus the um, the cigarette adverts, there was a law where you weren't actually allowed to show smoking or cigarettes. 
So they were these really creative, weird, abstract art pieces that didn't really have anything to do with smoking. So already my brain is very <laughs> challenged and confused. <laughs> like, okay, the cigarettes are called silk cut, and I'm seeing a giant piece of silk in the Sahara Desert being cut by a scantily clad woman. So, you know, it was weird. Um, <laughs> and then, sorry, I'm just going to carry on talking nonstop. And yes, please. Oh, so then the film starts. And so Cujo is a really interesting movie. And I think it divulges a bunch from the novel, right? I mean, the well, ending is Yes and no. The ending is the big one. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ending is in the book if people at this point don't know but they should this is like this is like Stephen King 101 to like even if you've just heard the name Stephen King this is like uh, basic trivia here but the uh, the book ends with Tad dying in uh, the the young boy that's trapped in the car with the mother the mother is finally victorious over the rabid dog that has him trapped there and you know after multiple days you know they've been sick he's been having seizures they're all dehydrated like all this stuff she finally is victorious and returns to the kid and the kid is dead and same thing happens in the movie but uh, d wallace gives him cpr and he comes back and then the dad shows up and their happy families reunited uh not not quite the case in the book she gives him cpr and he just doesn't come back uh and wow. the end of the book is essentially them rebonding as a couple essentially over the trauma of losing a child. So, so uh, it's his bittersweet ending and King is, has talked a lot about how, you know, he got so many letters, you know, from people pissed off that he killed the kid. And uh, his response is just like, I didn't intend for him to die, but I was writing it and I was as surprised as you were. And as oh. it was coming out, he, he was dead. So wow. kicking off this uh, Cujo discussion with a very end of movie and end of book spoilers. Apologies for, <laughs> for the no warning there. But uh, well, it, it's interesting because it it, it it sort of speaks to the whole movie because it's a it's a it felt when I saw it as a kid as a really it felt like a really sadistic film. A mm, little bit. And, yeah. And part of the energy in my mind at that age was why now don't get me wrong it's really brilliant and it's very entertaining and i think it's a really really strong movie in fact rewatching it it's a really strong piece of work but at the time having not seen a movie like that before i was like this is entertaining i've paid <laughs> to see this 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 woman who's cheated on her husband and is now being like this boy is going to die and the dogs attacking them and this is horrible but but who are these other people in this room in this cinema with me who find this entertaining? You know, it felt so. And I guess that's probably you know also the difference between a movie and the book. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the book is in the mind of the dog a bunch, right? Yes. Yeah. That formatting that you were talking about earlier, the capitalization of words and yeah, that sort of thing. He does some really. Um, interesting stuff with that. Whenever it switches over to Cujo's point of view, and you're you're hearing uh, or reading his internal monologue, like he thinks of his owners as the man, all capital letters, or the woman, all capital letters, and you know, um, tends to think more in like uh, like swaths of basic emotion than you know. Um, the way we think it's, it's really, mm. it's really interesting what he does with Cujo's internal, internal monologue mm. and in the book. And I, it's actually maybe my favorite thing about the book. Cause it 
stuck with me all my life the the decisions he made on the formatting there right it makes kudra more of a tragic character because mm-hmm. when you're inside his mind he isn't like oh must kill woman it is the rabies is eating away at his brain and the loud noises or bright lights are causing him such pain that he just has to stop the pain right yeah and it's not like he's sitting there just trying to torment this family it's just this is a co- he views them as the cause of his pain and when she honks the horn or whatever, it's like he has to get them to stop. And and just the, their smell is making him sick. Like everything is is kind of uh, offensive to him. Offensive to him, yeah. And it just makes him like this this poor loving dog, you know. That uh, uh, even in the full grips of of the rabies, he's still there, but like just lashing out and not understanding what his actions are. You know, it's it's a um, very a very tragic character, you know, at that that point. You know. And rabies was a bit like rabies was a big deal in the UK in the late seventies and the first half of the eighties. Like whenever you, whenever one traveled to Europe, like on a on a ferry to France, which obviously you can do very easily from the UK, there would be big signs with terrifying pictures of fro- of, of frothing dogs' jaws and convulsing pallid children warning you not to pet dogs in Europe because and 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 you couldn't you couldn't take your pets abroad there were of terrifying public information movies about the dangers of rabies and every time we went on holiday as kids to to france we would be terrified if a if a dog came up to us because of the risk of rabies from a bite and th- this is pre cujo was that the same in the states was was do you think i mean maybe you guys are too young to remember but was was rabies a thing that people knew about back then i remember I being mean, aware of it as a kid but it was sort of like a Kind of the way, you know, you think about like quicksand and cartoons from that era. Like right. it was you heard about it a lot, but you never actually saw it in real life. You know, um, yeah, it, it, I associate it with like uh, how every your, your parents would be like, watch out for dogs. They have rabies. Watch out for don't pet squirrels or don't go after animals. Right. They, they have rabies in the same way. They'd go, you know, don't uh, don't mess around in the old buildings because you're going to get tetanus. Right. right. And it was like right. the, the right. whole you're going to get tetanus, you're going to get lockjaws. The it was on the same level of you're going to get rabies. So don't fuck around. You won't find out, essentially, you know. So I should mention as well another great movie about a dog told from the dog's point of view is is a French horror movie called Baxter, B-A-X-T-E-R, made in I think the late eighty nine, the late eighties. Mm-hmm. And it is about a fascist bull terrier. And it's, um, and it's narrated by the dog. Really, it came out on Blu-ray. There's an American Blu-ray edition came out last year or the year before. It's amazing, and you, it's really worth checking out. It's unlike any other movie I've seen before. And it's the dog narrates it, and it's from the dog's point of view. And he's what? just, he's just, yeah, <laughs> this, this is real. And he's just, a, he just does not like the people who he is, who own him. So do you know that that movie that's out now, EO, about the donkey? It's kind of like the opposite. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> instead of the donkey being this lovely passive thing that it's the dog is a motherfucker right <laughs> a fascist and oh, it's 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 it. an amazing movie and I, I i recommend it and um but very different from from cujo but because he is a good dog turned bad by the bite yes indeed yeah yeah he didn't start off as an asshole right <laughs> So this title always comes up, I think, whenever we we start talking about Cujo. Uh, but it's one of those things that I just like to mention because it's a movie that nobody's ever fucking seen. Uh, Criterion put it out, but it's uh, Samuel Fuller's White Dog. 
Um, and since you mentioned a fascist uh, a dog named Baxter, uh, I couldn't help but associate that. Um, but uh, maybe it just should be its own subgenre of like dogs doing bad things. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's why I keep tying, tying them all together. Is, is sensational, yeah. And yeah. Baxter's really good as well. Be a great triple pill. What a great triple pill. I know. That- we could get on it. But somebody yeah. call the, the Odeon. Two racist dog movies and one that has rabies. Charming. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it's a, it's 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 a pretty full on movie, isn't it? And I think the things that really stand out about the movie, first of all, are the fact that it's shot by Jan de Bond, yeah. who went on to shoot Die Hard. I think is probably his most famous credit, but an incredible, uh, incredible action DOP. And you can see his creative flair. There's one particularly famous shot in Cujo, where um, D Wallace and and the kid tad uh freaking out in the car and it's a it's a it's a 360 pan right you remember that shot that goes right yeah. have you talked about that extensively before not extensively but it has come up yeah yeah i mean that's i i, I was talking to my dop tom townend who shot lockwood and co and and uh and attack the block whether we could think of any time that had been done before because mm-hmm. it was done in children of men uh you know and featured very prominently in all the behind the scenes material as kind of this innovative thing. So I was really surprised to see it in a movie from 20 years earlier. Yeah. And uh, I, maybe it's the first time that was done, that rig put on top of a vehicle. It might've been the first time that the cameras were small enough to actually do that. Right. That's interesting. Um, and then there's obviously the, the, the terrific shot where, the, where Tad runs to his bed at the beginning where they built two sets and uh, the distance between the light switch and the bed, <laughs> right. elongates after he turns the light off which is a really brilliant effect it, it's just kind of cool the amount of time it takes uh like what is it it's an 83 minute movie something like that yeah thereabouts and it's got to be like 40 to 50 minutes maybe 40 minutes before the situation kicks in right right mm-hmm and the time it takes just to get all the chess pieces into the right place on the board for that to happen. I mean, some might say that's one of the things that that is a little laborious about the setup, how the wife of the of the garage owner has to take the kid away, <laughs> you know, just just right. to get them into that situation. Uh, but it's 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 credit to it's a credit to the storytelling that that, and I guess again in the book because he's got more real estate to set it all up and set the motives up maybe it's a little less convenient than it comes across on in in the movie oh yeah yeah no in in the book you get this whole story uh, behind the the cambers late you know the apparently the husband's abusive and yeah. she wins a lotto and she uses mm-hmm. that as her excuse to get out and i think that's mentioned in the movie that's but in like there, you, yeah but you actually like you're kind of living with them and you see this as the escape so what's putting this other family in danger you know what sets the table for that is this other you know family part of a family you know finally finding freedom and 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 the way you know finding a way out of abuse and and all this which is you know which is very interesting um there there's also you mentioned uh, the tad uh being scared of the monster in the closet thing and that's another big thing in the the book that isn't really mentioned in the movie because this is uh you 
keeping in mind this is like the those early days of King starting to like merge his stories together and set them all in the shared universe. Hmm. Um, where this is a Castle Rock story that happened shortly after the Dead Zone, so like they make mention of uh, Frank Dodd, the killer from that uh, Johnny Smith helps uh, catch the the deputy that he's like the town boogeyman now, like they think his ghost is everywhere. And like he heavily insinuates that his ghost is what's in the, the Tad's closet in the book. Yeah. Right. But uh, I think it's ultimately just supposed to mean like kind of a harbinger of, of, uh, of doom and like, you know, the, the town's evil gets represented in multiple forms in this where Mm -hmm. sometimes it's the dog. Sometimes it's the abusive, you know, Joe Cambers. Sometimes it's the potentially the ghost of a, of a serial killer from this town. And, but there's a very kind of, um, thoughtful through line in terms of perceived fear and, and perceived threat and real threat. Right. So the the boy is imagining monsters in the closet. The, the husband is imagining his wife's affair. You know, the, the D Wallace's character is imagining is, is afraid of what her life might be without her husband. So yeah. there are all these imaginary fears. Uh, who knows what's happening in Steve's head? You know, the guy who's having, who's having the affair with them um, with what's the mum, what's D Wallace's character called? Donna. Donna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Donna so there's all these, you. all these, all these, all these characters who are afraid of what might happen and then mm. something actually does happen and something really kind of, and, and is it unusual for a Stephen King book not to have a supernatural element at all for it to be a completely credible kind of veterinary based <laughs> antagonist? It's certainly not the norm, but mm. I, I mean, we could rattle off a number of King stories that don't, have Not, a supernatural right, element, but right. this is this is one of the few from that, that time period where that's the case. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, and this is also the one that famously he doesn't remember writing. Like right. he likes right. the book, he's just like I was. I was shit faced the entire right, time. Man. Have, wouldn't that be no memory? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Just the notion of not remembering writing something <laughs> feels so aspirational to me. I, mean, not I would that be I terrified to, to read a, it the next day. No, but like writing is such an, is always, I'm not saying I don't enjoy it, but, but I always know I'm doing it. Do you know what I mean? Right, (laughs) right, right. Like like the idea of just not being conscious of doing it sounds like I might want to develop an alcohol problem. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Joe, I'm going to need you to kick this up a notch in, in the next movie you direct or the next series you direct. Yes, uh, I need you to be so drunk that you don't remember directing any of it. <laughs> I wouldn't. I'm sure I wouldn't be the world's first drunk director. <laughs> right? I'm sure some pretty good movies have probably been made on heavy whiskey abuse in the fifties. Just and you and Sam 60s. Peckinpah. Yeah. Yeah. There we yeah. go. <laughs> Welcome to the mid-roll, where we are going to sit a spell and talk to you a little bit about the show's sponsor today. There's something wrong with the children from Blumhouse Productions. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, something that we brought up when Roxanne was on the show is not only does this get the King cast seal of approval, this movie gets the Stephen King himself seal of approval. The dude not only saw the movie, but he blurbed it for them, which one yeah. it's, it's incredible. That dude does that every once in a while. He's very famously did it with evil dead. And Sam Raimi says that he owes his career to Stephen King. And, 
and there's something I love about King is he'll always, you know, kind of go to bat and try out yeah. these, these genre things. Um, I want to read you the quote that he said for this movie. The quote is there's something wrong with the children is like the omen crossed with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's scary and totally engrossing. I would crap my pants if I was the filmmaker that got a quote like that for, for their movie. Yeah. This is where I'm going to admit that I've never actually seen who's afraid of Virginia. Ooh, I'm well familiar with it. Like I know what it's about, but I've not actually seen it, but I, but I also understand, you know, it's importance in, uh, cinema history Mm. so yeah that's that's fucking nuts plus also the omen which yes which you you have seen yeah of course i've seen the omen (laughs) yeah you'd love who's afraid of virginia wolf because it's nothing but like really angry people insulting each other in intelligent and creative ways for like two hours so yeah it seems like it seems like it would be my jam i just haven't i haven't gotten around to sitting down to watch virginia wolf but i'm looking forward to it I'm happy that we get ad reads on this show for shit that we actually like. Like yeah. if we had ad reads for, I don't know, fucking bicycle seats that had spikes on them or, <laughs> yeah. or something, you know, something along those lines, I'd be like, well, we got to contractually, we have to read these ad reads. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be happy with myself about it, but mm. it seems like 90% of the time we are, or a hundred percent of the time, I should say to all of our sponsors, we are getting ad reads for products that we actually believe in. And this one is no different. I genuinely love this movie. It provides like a, a non handholdy sort of, uh, you know, pretty simple horror movie. You know, there's not, yeah. it's not a thing about trauma. It's not a thing about like the lore isn't a a, a big deal in it where you got to learn all these rules. And, mm. you know, there's no scene in the middle of it where like a professor calls in and, you know, advises one of the parents on how to deal with the children who have gone wrong. You know, it's a lean, mean fucking horror movie and it's a lot of, a lot of fun. So I, I hope that our listeners will listen to us when we say this is absolutely something you should go check out. Yep, absolutely. And it's available on VOD right now. Um, the movie stars Alicia Rainwright, uh, Zach Guilford from Midnight Mass fame, mm-hmm. uh, Amanda Crew, Carlos Santos, and uh, uh, and it has two evil kids in it that do evil kid shit. So what, what did Roxanne call it? She called it uh, Slumber Party Horror, right? There's yeah, some, that's a great like that. term, by the way. Yeah, and... And uh, yeah, this is just the kind of movie where you have fun. It's it's well made. You know, it, it's low budget enough to get away with shit that maybe mid budget or high budget horror wouldn't get away with. You know? <laughs> True. So, you know, it's kind of in that, that sweet spot. So we think that uh, y'all will like it. And we definitely appreciate Blumhouse Productions for sponsoring this episode uh, and giving doing it with a title that, that we actually like. Can you imagine if Blumhouse had reached out to us about Firestarter? You know, the kind of pretzels we would it. have had to bend ourselves into <laughs> to try to make that shit work. So I would. Can I go back to the bicycle seats with spikes? Sure. On? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah let's do it. <laughs> you know, uh, there. Uh, love Blumhouse. Uh, we love Roxanne. We love this movie, and we hope that all of you will will go check it out. If you liked, uh, what the fuck is that one? Uh, God damn it. What is it called? Leave all of this in. Uh, the thing we did a few months ago with um, Clay McLeod Chaplin. No. That that story. Oh, um, that is called Teacher Kills Demon Kids. Uh, no, that's not the title. It's 
it's suffer the little children suffer the little children Okay. I didn't look yeah, it up, we, by the way. That that just took about eight minutes for my brain to... Yeah, to we just, finally found it. Awesome. But uh, yeah. if you're a fan of that short story, um, you'll be a fan of There's Something Wrong with the Children. And if you just like fun horror or slumber party horror, as Roxanne put it on the show last week, you will also love There's Something Wrong with the Children. And I, I think that about does it. Yes? Yeah, I think we should get back into this uh, Cujo talk with Mr. Joe Cornish. What do you think? Yeah, please. Let's do <laughs> I think that that is pretty powerful in the movie, that theme of p- imagined threat and real yeah, threat. Right. And really it's kind of, um, it's amplified by the fact that the threat is not supernatural, that it's something as prosaic as a dog. But but I think it also, it's also tough for the movie because you're trying to, you, you know, you've got a kid in it and you've got a dog in it. Famously, you know, <laughs> the two of the hardest things to work with in front of a camera and then you're also trying to make one of the fluffiest, cutest dogs that's associated with rescuing people in the Alps uh, a, a vicious threat. And, and I remember certainly in the UK where critics have a tendency to snobbishness that there was, you know, that same film show that, 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 that I talked about earlier where they, where they reviewed The Shining. I remember that guy, a film critic called Barry Norman, being pretty snotty about this movie and, the, you know, in, in, in a way that critics often do, going for the most obvious kind of um, snark about it being, oh, you know, they do their best to make this fluffy St. Bernard scary by smearing jam and egg white on its nose, but really it's never that threatening. Um, which I do not agree with. I think they yeah. do a really strong job. I mean, the scenes where that dog is mauling D. Wallace, who, by the way, anybody of my generation would have last seen as as a uh, fallen in love with as the mom in E. T. Right? Mm-hmm. right. So, so she's my mom as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and and you know, this movie is dwelling for you know three or four minutes on her being savagely attacked by a dog, which also is a very realistic thing. To happen, you know, I've I've right. got a th- three three and a half year old daughter, and one of the things I'm most alert and wary of is is other people's dogs in the playground, yeah. and you know those things are at her head height, and um, it's a really real thing, rabies or no rabies, right? In my opinion, the movie does a really skillful job of of making the dog seem threatening with some pretty clever techniques, like they have like six or seven different dogs, right? And then they have a guy in a dog suit and then they have dogs trained to do different things. You know, they have one dog that's really good at like jumping on the car and sniffing through the windows. Another one that's Mm -hmm. really good at running and charging after stuff. They do a brilliant thing where they also have like multiple versions of that car cut and sliced in all sorts of different ways to achieve lots of different shots. And there's the, the brilliant shot where the dog chart starts headbutting the door right they do by positioning the camera in front of the door in front of the car removing both front both doors so the dog can just run at it and just charge literally through the car and out the other side but they cut just before it's its head would have touched where the door would have been right yeah and then they cut to a side angle of of somebody in, oh they also have a mechanical dog head they cut to a mm-hmm. side angle of the mechanical dog head walloping the the car, which is a super clever way to get a to make it feel as if that thing is maintaining its full momentum as it charges mm-hmm. the the car. So, like, I don't know, as as a kid, I saw it, I was terrified by it. 
as a, a cynical teenager, 20-something, I watched it and wasn't that impressed by it. But as now a very grizzled old man, I watched <laughs> it again and somebody who's made films and you think some of the shit they're pulling off here is really, really difficult and very, right. very sophisticated. It's funny you mention that because, you know, this is this is one of those movies where, like, when we started the show, uh, Eric and I have seen most Stephen King adaptations or had read most of the books. And a lot of them were books or movies that I had only seen once, maybe twice. And I didn't see Cujo when I was a little kid, but I did see it as a teenager and had that that reaction you did where it was like, eh, it's fine. You know, and so when we started doing this show, this ended up being one of the uh, one of the early titles we covered. And I remember kind of dragging my feet on revisiting the movie because my memory of it was that I didn't like it very much. Uh, and I was I was dumbfounded by what a difference that time had made, you know, between being a teenager and adult with a, a better grasp of filmmaking, because everything you're saying is right. It feels this feels to me. Uh, like one of the better King adaptions, full stop. And I'm I'm curious why it isn't held in higher regard. People always mention Pet Cemetery, It, The Shining, you know, The Dead Zone, uh, maybe a little less for The Dead Zone. But, um, you know, those are the big classic titles, whereas this one, I don't feel like it it gets the love that it deserves. Do you get that impression, Joe? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean... I do think there's something about it that's very brutal, right? Mm -hmm. The beginning, you have that, uh, you enter the movie in a kind of much more elegant place than you exit it. So, so by starting in the boy's imagination, by starting with that almost Spielbergian stuff, almost Joe Dante stuff, where you're playing with the scale of the room and that shot that flips on its head as he runs to his bed. It mm -hmm. kind of comes on like a different movie than it's going to be because it, it actually kind of abandons the kid's perspective. Yeah. Um, the kid is very much a victim in when it all kicks off, right? And that, that, that actor's performance, Danny Pintaro, whatever his name is, is, mm -hmm. is pretty sensational and pretty, pretty grueling, really, especially as a parent. You're like, fuck, this is, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is wrong. Really really raw and unpleasant so 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 it ends up almost being a torture porn movie you know it's, it's kind of like eli roth kind of like almost <laughs> like a precursor to a 90s or a noughties sadistic you know texas chainsaw do you know what i mean like right, a raw, yeah. it's also got the baking heat the, the 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 kind of creepy tumble down house it feels like a grizzly it's sunshine horror which is one of my favorite genres as well mm -hmm. it does have eyes you know where where you where you don't have the advantage of darkness to to create atmosphere so it really feels kind of ahead of its time it turns into a different movie in the second half mm. and maybe that's because because in that time in the 80s you know, the next movie he makes, Cat's Eye, is much more self-aware and it's got a bunch of references to the, the Kingverse or whatever you call it. You know, Christine appears, Cujo appears. Right, like it's much right. more kind of like sassy and meta. More schlocky. More schlocky. So this is a movie out of time, really. It's, it, it's, it's not really an 80s movie. It kind of wants to be at the beginning because it's about divorce and a child's imagination very Spielbergian territory, but then it becomes after the mechanics of setting up the situation, the situation is just fucking brutal. 
and it's yeah. real time. It's really intense. She's constantly frustrated. Uh, every time she opens that door, you know, she has to close it again because the dog's there. <laughs> yeah. and, and it it just, it's almost real time. It's not real time because a couple of days go by, right? Um, and then it just, it adds horror onto horror when the boy, you know, as if the, as if the sheer panic and terror of, of being trapped in the car, seeing your mum mauled, like the dehydration, and then he starts having this fit, like holy shit, you couldn't, you couldn't get much worse, really. So, so I guess that's it. And then, and then it, I guess it is difficult, maybe for some people to to fully commit to the dog. They do mm. a superb job of it. But it's a tough ask, and it's probably an easier ask in the book where you're inside the dog's head and you're not, you're 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 dealing with like a clash of psychologies, uh, and you don't have that luxury in the book. You know that's why it's interesting to reference Baxter, that French movie, because the dog has a voiceover. You know, and <laughs> so you can get inside the dog's head. In this, you're just dealing with a dog doing. You know, all you have is the physical aspect of what it does to play with um, even though the opening nature photography is sensational the the shots of it chasing the rabbit the the shots of the bats like that opening right. five six minutes is is incredible really difficult stuff to shoot as well all of this stuff is difficult to shoot to get the kids performance to get the blocking to keep it interesting in that limited space is really really challenging and and he aces and make it all. it all edit together no less right right but fundamentally what king has presented you uh, is really fucking difficult, I think, and and, mm. and and not not that any of it's easy, but it's maybe easier with the written word than right. it is actually putting in front of the camera. Because because also, and this is interesting, and, and and Lewis T talks about this in some of the making of material that you see all sorts of brutality, you see all sorts of horrible things the dog does, but he can't show her hitting the dog with the bat. Because he understands that you don't fuck with dogs in cinema, because <laughs> right. because your audience, you know, you can you can chop any adult up you want, but you can't hurt a dog because it's too challenging. You know, people need to know that the dogs were cared for. So he's got that to deal with as well. You know, he can't not that he's going to be cruel to the dog on set, but he can't be perceived to have been cruel to the dog. Sure. So even even the way he he puts that little bit of whatever it is on the dog's nose to illustrate the bite you probably can't even put a proper pr prosthetic you know if he had tom savini savini would be kind of like oh shit what do i do i'm <laughs> setting the dog do you know what i mean right. so i just think there is a lim uh, there is a line he can't cross with the dog that that unless you're admiring the craft of somebody who is cognizant of technique that maybe is difficult for people to to get over, but boy, does he compensate by putting the putting the living through it, including right. the kid, who right. who again in the making of material, uh, they make a point of having the actor say, "Listen, I loved it. I was not traumatized. I knew what was happening all the time. It's a really it was a really enjoyable experience." Because boy, would you think that that kid had been through it just because of the. They the paid him off to say that. I'm convinced that you watch that. That <laughs> uh, listen, Danny Pintaro, uh, fantastic actor, doesn't get his due. You know who's the boss? Good, good, good for you. Um, 
that so he, but you, 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 you guys look can at tell that. you guys can tell me about that because I didn't know him from Adam when I saw him. But he was would he have been recognizable to American audiences as a as a sitcom actor as a child star? It, he would have been. I don't think at the time Cujo came out. I think Who's the Boss was like right, maybe basically overlapping maybe. or or like later because he was like a tween in that. Yeah, um, but I, I must have seen Who's the Boss first because I recognized him as the kid from Who's the Boss when I watched the movie. Um, but, uh, I mean, listen, movies are, are hard to make and, and they are, they make, uh, the impossible seem possible. So who, who fucking knows if, uh, if he's telling the truth or not, but I watched that movie and I'm like that, that's not a, a five-year-old acting, uh, yeah. scared. That's, they scared the fuck out of that kid. But to, adaptations to get that reaction. are tough, aren't they? Uh, it's really interesting. Yeah. And King is so interesting just in terms of, uh, studying, how to do adaptations. And I'm sure you've discussed to death before, you know, the TV version of The Shining and the movie version of The Shining and how how, how by not being literal, the movie surpasses the more literal adaptations. Mm-hmm. So deciding the degree to which you're going to change the work or compress the work or impose your own pattern on the work, uh, it's, it's really, really interesting and um and and from what you're saying, Cujo feels like a, a a fairly literal adaptation, but one that compresses a great deal. Apart from the ending, it does. Um, I think that you're you're right in that King is notoriously difficult to adapt because people focus on the wrong things, and it's also mm-hmm. a story by story basis. Because if you read the original, The Body, uh, there there are two or three pages in a row of just the kids talking that is just pulled line for line, you know, into the script. Right. And, uh, and they capture the voices in, in stand by me. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, and that is a, just a, a direct lift, not, and I'm not like being like, Oh, this is this major, uh, crazy thing that they're pulling here and, and whatever, but it's what they do with stand by me is, is so directed at certain points. And the only thing they really do is kind of cut out moments like cut out uh, in, in the novella, you read um, Gordy's uh, work and, you know, he writes some, some noir and you read like eight pages of his noir that, that he, he had written and whatnot, mm-hmm. but pretty much everything in that is just like a direct one-to-one. And it's one of the most amazing Stephen King movies that's ever been made. Huh. Uh, but you can't really, then you look again, you look at the shining and, you know, you know, we love our, our Mick Garris over here, but the shining to me, the miniseries exists more as, um, an interesting exercise than a, uh, the ideal version of, of that, uh, you know, of, of that book. Right. On screen. Yeah. It's, it's interesting Um, because when I said about adapting Lockwood and coaches based on novels, I've, I really recalled my feelings about Stephen King when I was a kid and about how I used to just want literal word for word adaptations because they felt so cinematic when you read them, you were, you're making the movie in your head as you read them. Mm-hmm. But, and I, that's what I started to do. I took the book of Lockwood and co and I transposed it. I turned it into scenes, but you know, you've got, you know, the book has whatever, however many hundred pages and you, you've only got 50 and then right. plus, once you lay it out in screenplay format, you've got even less because you you know you have a smaller word count and a bunch of empty lines b- between sp- speeches and, and and scene description and stuff. Right. So you st- immediately have to start making ruthless choices about what which of these scenes actually are vital to turn the story forward and which of them mm-hmm. aren't. And okay, well, I really love this bit. How can I get it in here? What can I afford to do? 
and really just the uh, practicalities start to start to make the start the process off right to condense the shining and end up with something that keeps the right bits <laughs> mm. to become something so different and strong is 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 a hell of a thing i think especially mm. as it wasn't a particularly respectable movie at the time but listen we're right. not talking about the shining we're talking about kudra <laughs> and, and i and i do think it yeah i do think the dog is an issue for people even though watching it now it's really frightening but on the page, I think that juxtaposition between, okay, we perceive this as a cute dog, but this cute thing has flipped and become even more evil because it was cute. It's probably a better trick or an easier trick to pull off than, than on the page. Mm. I mean, the ending is interesting right in the movie. The fact that they end on that freeze frame, right. which is not particularly elegant, right? And, and again, in the, in the behind-the-scenes stuff. So A, the kid lives... And then she walks out of the house carrying him in her arms in a really nice low angle dolly shot that kind of sweeps around the front porch. And then the husband runs in and and they they sort of freeze frame at this very awkward moment as if as if in the very next frame something they didn't want us to see was about to happen. You know what All I mean? Right. Like Yeah, D D Walls has got like a thousand yard stare going on. Yeah. Right. It doesn't feel like uh necessarily what they planned. Um, but I, but endings like that are very interesting. Attack the block ends in a, in a freeze frame that actually we came upon during pickups. Like the ending was different in the script, but it kind of came to me as we thought about the pickups. Um, but the ending of Cujo is not premeditated. I don't think. And I think it's because they shot a bunch of stuff where, uh, the, the, you know, D Wallace's character has a conversation with her husband and they, resolve all those through lines and then they realize well you don't you don't need to resolve the subplots the a plot is resolved the second the audience understand that the a plot is resolved and everything else is just sweat do you know what i mean everything else is just uh dress you know dressing but that in itself is weird because well you spent the first 40 minutes of the film setting all that stuff up and right. you and you mean it's all just going to be paid off by implication with the image as if to say as if to say well come on i mean when you're when your wife has been savaged by a dog and your 6 year old son very nearly died then who cares about the affair <laughs> right, <laughs> right. like the sheer just the hierarchy of problems it's just like you know it's 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 trumped any any other intermarital interpersonal shit is trumped by this massive extra personal threat. It doesn't quite feel like that is elegantly done, right? How does the book do it? Does the book then continue? Does it spend more pages on dealing with all those all that stuff at the beginning, or does it end as abruptly? No, it, it has that uh, that prologue I was mentioning earlier, where right. where uh, Donna and her husband. Um, essentially they they they're distant but they like grow closer essentially over the the death of their kid but you you get like uh lots of uh he spends a little time talking about like her rabies treatment and the pain of of having to get those you know the rabies shots and whatnot and uh, and all that and how the husband you know is by her side and and then it like kind of ends with them uh, like at home quiet and there's there's always going to be the death of their son hanging over them but in a weird way it's also what's keeping them together so yeah 
I sometimes try and I'm, I haven't like figured this out yet, but I try and think of a I, I sometimes try and think of a metaphor for the difference between a book, a TV show, and a and a movie. And I mm. think a movie is a is a jet plane. I think a book may well be just one of those uh, very luxurious train rides across Europe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What is a what is a TV show? A TV show maybe is a Maybe the TV show is the train ride, and a movie uh, and a book is a is a long car journey. Do you know what I mean? Mm. They 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 move at a different pace. They cost more, and there's a comparatively different amount of time to look out the window. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And it just maybe a hike. You know, a hike. Right. 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 So it just, just feels like somehow in the translation. There's something that the book can do that the movie can't in terms of balancing these really extreme ingredients, that the, that the thread of the dog is so simple and powerful, it just, it just overpowers the subplots that have led up to it, you know, and, 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 and a movie can't deal with then fussing about the minutiae, but the book can, because you just feel you have that much more time, you know, and um, you've made that much greater a commitment on the run-up. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. And one of my favorite things about this this story, I either the film or the or the novel, is that you know it's there's nothing that Donna Trenton has done actively to there or, or let me come at it from a different angle. There's nothing she could have done to avoid being the situation. As a confluence of events, the chaos of the universe has brought her into this little like podunk farms you know front lawn area or front drive or whatever and whoops there's a a rabid saint bernard there that's there's something very scary to me about the idea of sometimes it doesn't matter what you did there's no there's nothing you could have done to avoid this why have the affair so if you take a moral reading and this is all if you take a moral reading the the you know in kind of stalk and slash logic in horror movie logic she has brought it upon herself with her sin, right? I guess you could look at it. I'm not. I'm choosing not to look at it that way. <laughs> um, I kind of think I, you have to. Otherwise, why have that first forty minutes? You know, there's plenty of horror movies where they are completely innocent and they turn up at a place, and it's purely a force of circumstance even though there's also plenty of horror movies where directors say, oh, there's no moral code going on here. Like Halloween, for instance, John, John Carpenter will absolutely dismiss any feminist theorizing or, you know, final girl theorizing right. or the notion that Jamie Lee Curtis is virginal and the other two girls are having it off with their with their boyfriends. You know, he'll totally dismiss that. But everybody, everybody is compelled to read that, like, moral through line into it. And I think, I don't know, I would... I would ask that question, like, why bother lay lay the pipe of the affair? Uh, that's an inelegant metaphor, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> if 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 it doesn't some is if it isn't somehow punishing her, or punishing is the wrong word in some way retribution, because the husband's hands are very clean. I mean, what's he done? He's made a he's made a mistake with. Food coloring in his he cereal. Has, he's made a cereal that <laughs> that makes kids think that they're they're bleeding out their buttholes, which yeah. is really cool and funny, by the way. Yeah, it's I such a good I'm little. Just, I mean, you're not you're not wrong. I, I can't argue that. But I I I guess when I watch this or when I've read the book, 
Um, I look at that as the the plot machinations that are necessary in order to get them there and less mm. about punishing her as a character. Right. But, it, but really, the question I was I was getting to originally is, Joe, have you ever found yourself in a position like this, like unexpectedly in danger and unsure how the hell to get out of it with no obvious solution in sight? Has like anything along those lines ever happened to you? Uh, well, that's quite a question. Um, yeah, well, I can think of a bunch of times. I'm not sure <laughs> whether I want to talk about them. <laughs> there was a weird time. Do you know, do you guys know London at all? A little not bit. Not really. There's a street called Oxford Street, Oxford Street, right? One of the main shopping okay. streets in central London. Very, very busy street. People come from all over Britain to shop there. Very super crowded. The most crowded, busiest shopping street in the country. And I was in post on one of my things and I, I was on my bicycle and I pedaled across the road. This is nothing like Cujo, by the way. So you can tell me to stop <laughs> you talking. You didn't have an affair. No, 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 I didn't just, have I... an affair. No. I'm, I'm, I'm making my film. Anyway, I cycle across this road and this guy steps out in front of me uh, and deliberately makes me crash into him on my bicycle. And then he, and so I, I, I squeeze my uh, brakes and I stop and I go, oh, sorry, sorry. And he looks at me with a look of such uh, menace, uh, like really kind of preternatural, like I can see in his eyes that this person is going to kill me. Right. And, he, and he starts going, you fucked up my trousers. You've messed my trousers. You fucking expensive trousers, mate. What are you going to do about my fucking trousers? It was a it's Guy so, Ritchie character. I, well, that's what it was like. But like, but I could see this guy and I was like, God, this guy's going to attack me in the street. And it's going to be one of those situations where there's a thousand people around me and no one's going to do anything. And I was really, really, really scared. And I was straddling my bike. I didn't know. It sounds weird, right? Because it doesn't sound that scary. But you've got to trust me that the look in this guy's eyes was psychotic. So the only, I thought the only way I can get out of this is by turning my bike around really violently so it makes him take a step away. Otherwise, it'll hit him. And then cycling into moving traffic. And either I'm going to be hit by a car, and that'll be better than being hit by him. <laughs> or, and so that's what I did. I bullshat, and then I spanned my bike round, made him recoil, and I cycled into moving traffic and just miraculously got through the other side. But it was really frightening because I thought he was going to murder me. I've got others, actually, that are scarier. <laughs> that's the one that sprang to mind. Um, well, I was, I was yeah. curious because it – you know, in telling a story like that, you're sort of laying bare what your decision-making skills are yeah. like under intense pressure. And that's that's really the root of what I'm curious about here. Because if I were trapped in a Ford Pinto mm. in the baking heat with a screaming kid and surrounded by, you know, a uh, St. Bernard with rabies, I don't honestly know what the fuck I would do. I think I would just, you know, there'd probably be a prolonged period of crying. Yeah. And freaking out and then maybe hoping for somebody to get me because I don't think I could outrun the fucking thing. I know you, Scott, if you were in the car with a kid and you would have just chucked that kid at the St. Bernard and say good luck and run, you know, run out of there. You might is, not be it, wrong. It, you're right. It is. It is brilliant, isn't it? Because you do in movies like that, like like Edgar and I um, to do some terrible name dropping. We when we were writing Tintin. 
Edgar was staying in uh, Quentin Tarantino's guest house. And so we, it was, a, I wasn't, I was staying in some other place, but I came up and we wrote there the whole time and we would hang out with Quentin in the evenings and uh, he would, uh, we watched one of those alligator movies that was came out in the early noughties. I forget what it's called. Lake Placid, maybe? No, no, no. I'd have to research the name, but 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 I really dug it. Um, he didn't like it so much, and he said the reason why he didn't like it was he said he doesn't like movies where you are in you put yourself in the exact same position as the protagonist, and their choices need to need their survival choices need to be your survival choices, and the mm. second they make a choice that you wouldn't yourself make, you're out of the movie. Hmm. You know what I mean? So he doesn't hmm. like the sort of um, the sort of the sort of simplicity of the through line in terms of your relationship to the narrative. But Cujo's really good in that respect. Like I wasn't. I don't watch it and think, oh, she should be doing this or she should be doing that. I think she by and large because she can't like she can't risk kicking it because if she kicks in the windows, then it has easy access to the car, right? Hmm. Yeah. She's not on a slope, so she can't just take off the handbrake and roll away. Right. Like, they pay great attention to the fact that the handles come off the doors. Like, is there anything that you think she sh- is there anything that you think she should be doing that she doesn't do? Right. Well, in, like, and then the heat on top of all that, so right. she can't just sit there and wait it out. You yeah. Know, it's it's kind of diabolical. It's, yeah. it's also something that that began in the King novel that I think is shown really well in the adaptation is how Donna and Cujo are kind of degrad. I don't know what's the word They're They're, they're getting more and more worn out and uh, at equal pace, you know, they're so she's getting dehydrated. Cujo succumbing to the rabies. And in the book, it's a lot more clear because you're inside Cujo's mind that there's a ticking clock for Cujo that maybe if she just waits it out, she could feasibly wait out Cujo that he's dying at such a rapid pace because of the rabies. Um, uh, But what they do in the movie is they kind of show visually how, you know, whether it's the conditioner and the dog's hair that's making him all matted and, and whatnot more slobbery. And he just looks more rundown and I have to say, I didn't pick that up at all. I felt the dog was, was never less than lethal at all times. I didn't get I think a sense visually of... that that they they show that you know that as she like her lips are cracked and then you look at him and he's like yeah. more bloody and he's more but I, that like, to me is just oh god he's even more dangerous yeah. <laughs> he's well, like, getting I mean, more in a way and more he is because bestial yeah because he savages <laughs> that cop right in the classic king does, tradition yeah. where the savior the savior gets nixed right the mm-hmm. cop that turns up and then gets eaten like that's pretty late in proceedings isn't it. Right. Well, Cujo, as he's getting sicker, he's become it's one, it's eating away at his body. So he is becoming less of a threat, but he's also becoming crazier. It's eating way more of his mind. So he he might not be as strong as he was at the end of it, but he's crazier. And I guess that makes up for it. Um, whereas Donna, the one thing that I've, I've always thought of, and it's only something you can do when you know how the story turns out and you're looking back, you know, with, uh, 2020 hindsight, right. Where you go, if you, you were at your strongest early on in this and you stood the best chance of beating Cujo to the door to get to the phone, which is another thing I love about the story. It's, it's not somebody trapped at sea, lost at sea, and there's just nothing but, you know, miles of ocean, no matter where you turn, there's no salvation anywhere. She is sitting within 30 feet right. of salvation. She just can't 
fucking get to it. You know, that, that is, it's cruel, but it's also so realistic in, in this, uh, you know, modern age of convenience and stuff. Because even back then, like that was convenience of a landline was right inside. It wasn't, you know, she had her, her out. She just couldn't get there. It is brilliant. I'm trying to think of how you would, how the, the missing thing is obviously the interior life of the dog. Right. How should, how could you, if, if, okay, we're remaking it, right? It would be quite right. a good candidate for a remake because you mm-hmm. could do a bunch of the dog stuff digitally or you could do it with uh, animatronics and then enhance it digitally. Yeah. So you could go to the next level with the dog stuff, but you would need to find a way to get inside the dog's head because I think that is the thing that they struggle to reach to express the state of mind of the dog more mm. clearly and obviously and its deterioration. How would you do it? Obviously, think- you get Josh Gad in to be the voice of Cujo. <laughs> oh, God. I think I, I think I would have... I'm not a film director. Maybe this is the worst thing I've ever said out loud. But um, I think if it were me, I would have, you know, maybe there's a close-up on the dog's face to cue you, cue you into the fact that you're about to get a little peek behind the curtain, right? And sort of, sort of like how the... The internal monologue of the book is, like I was saying earlier, it's sort of captured in emotions and, you know, the urges of the dog based on uh, overwhelming sensations that it's that it has. Maybe the interior monologue when represented visually is, you know, uh, a combination of images um, that are that are unfolding in the dog's mind that are impressionistic enough to sort of lead you to where the uh maybe when it's angry they're all tinged red some shit like that or you know um it's 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 thinking of the the, of where where it got bit and transposing that over to the um you know one of the characters in the car somehow yes i I don't know but can i I pitch something yeah of course you're the director have you seen the uh have you seen the uh norwegian movie the innocence uh same name as the not. 60s movie we were talking about earlier. Okay, this is an absolutely superb movie. It's a Norwegian horror movie. came out in 2022. It's called The Innocence. The director is Eskil Vogt. I don't know how you say his name, V-O-G-T. You must see it. It's incredible. It's about psychic kids living in a tower block in Norway. And this one psychic kid is evil, and he has this kind of the Fury-style battle with these other kids in this housing block. It's fucking amazing. Oh, this was a fantastic fest. Yeah, yeah, I Probably. It's got rave reviews. It's really, really great, really hardcore, and really, really terrific. It does this brilliant thing where when one of the kids goes evil, to express what that kid is feeling, when the kid looks at a completely normal situation, it turns that situation into a horror film, right? So this isn't exactly right, but say it's just a woman at a bus stop and the kid is possessed with an urge to kill the woman. It'll cut from a daylight scene of a woman at a bus stop to suddenly it's no longer a bus stop, it's a forest and it's pitch dark and it's terrifying and there's mist and the woman is no longer a woman, but she's a threatening monster coming for that kid. Right, And so it changes the whole scenario to a world where you totally understand why you would want to attack that thing do you know what i mean right no this is your this is basically what i was trying to say you're just saying it in a much 
smarter way. Or no, maybe I wasn't <laughs> listening to what you were saying because I was thinking about what I was going to say, and now I've just repeated what you said. No, uh, but your yours makes a lot more sense, and you stumbled over your words a lot less. So okay, <laughs> this, well, that's yeah, kind well, of what yeah. I was saying when I I meant like transposing the threat of what had bitten it over to the woman. What I was imagining was like, you know, maybe she has a bat's face. Or something yeah, like there that. You go. When I said that, and so we're we're on the same page here, my man. So yeah, you I, make you you make a movie from the dog's point of view, but with some sort of exaggerated, flipped dog vision. You know, what is terrifying to dogs? What must the dog destroy? And you put that. That would be quite good, wouldn't it? Would be I very think. Interesting. Listen, if we were sort of uh, studio heads, we would get in touch with the guy that directed The Innocents and mm. try and get him to remake Cujo. Or they'd get in touch with the guy that directed Attack the Block, which had a bunch of glowy teeth, Cujos chasing down kids. Yeah, there you go. There Just you saying. Go. Would you ever be interested in doing a, you know, a relatively contained movie like this, like a single location? Oh yeah, Just, definitely. Yeah. I'd do it with a cat though, Cat Joe. <laughs> and I'd put my cat in it, Joe's cat. It would flip both ways, Cat Joe, Joe's cat. Uh, no, I, no, I think that would be, you know, I mean. You know, I don't, yeah, it could be good, couldn't it? It could be really good. I mean, the thing is, I guess the un- other fundamental question about Cujo is do people want to see a killer dog? And then do people want to see that dog killed? Do you know what I mean? No, I definitely it's- know what you mean. I won't, I'll see the most skin crawling, horrific horror movies you can name. You know, mm-hmm. uh, no problem. But like you were saying earlier, I don't want to see a dog death. I'm tired of it. And um, I'm a big animal lover, you know. You're it puts me of off. Dog deaths. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I, my, dude. I didn't see John Wick for a long time because right. my understanding was it opened with like a puppy getting like stomped on to death, and I was like, "Fuck right. that!" It's not. I've seen gunplay before, and eventually i I saw the second one. I saw the second one before I saw the first one. Mm. But I will. I have definitely been known to avoid a movie if I hear there's like a particularly cruel animal death in it. Yeah. Uh, so, and I think a lot of people are like that. Um, it is a good question. Um, and and would then you add even a suffering this? kid. You add a six-year-old being made yeah. to suffer. Well, that's it's fine. A, it's a tough. Good. <laughs> it's a it's a tough combination. I mean, maybe I maybe we just go the other way and make Cujo like th- throw in some puppies and <laughs> make it a kindergarten <laughs> instead of a garage. Well, and how just about really- this? <laughs> how about this? It it is. Uh, an adulterous wife and the lovable family dog, and yes. then they run into a rabid six-year-old that yes. is keeping. Oh, okay, yeah. well that would no, be a good twist if the yeah if the if the kind of like fit that the kid has turns it rabid, and it ends up <laughs> and then she, up like she's running away from she's a rabid di- tad and a rabid Saint Bernard. But then you know what? We've just stumbled into another Stephen King novel. You know, we've st- suddenly stumbled into Pet Cemetery with a like possessed <laughs> right. toddler. <laughs> right. So you can't win. Every every cr- like twisted avenue you go down, like he's he's got there before you. <laughs> Stephen King. Uh, I am curious though how a how a Cujo remake would be received. Just just conceptually, you know, because it doesn't feel like this film has the sort of following that would be precious about the movie being remade. No, and um, the flip is the the title and the concept are almost more famous than the movie and the book, right? Right, right. right. 
like Cujo, like, Cujo just means a mean dog. Yeah, because you know, it does, like again, it says in the materials for the movie that that well, right because you guys would know better than me. But he just made that up, right? It does, it's not as if it has a myth. It's it's a mythological name, or it's a a means the word that means anything in any other language. It's Cujo. Just, it was yeah. it, it was um the name of one of the uh what should I call it the people that uh kidnapped Patty Hearst. Yeah, okay. it was in the Symbionese Liberation Army. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, here it is. It was like Cujo's name, name was based on the alias of Willie Wolf, one of the men responsible for orchestrating Patty Hearst kidnapping and indoctrination of the Symbionese Liberation Army. But that's very tangential, right? Yeah. And nobody's going to yeah. make that association. No. no. No, it's just a cool sounding name. So yeah. it's a super sticky word and a super sticky concept, yet, yet the actual. Like the, the 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 it looks delicious on the menu, but when you get served the food, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's hard to digest. Right, right. <laughs> if uh, if you could ma- wave a magic wand and adapt any any king property, is there one that you would be particularly excited about? Oh tackling? man, what a question! Even it, and let's you know blank playing field. Like you're the first person to adapt a Stephen King thing. Huh. Well. Man, holy shit. I don't know. I would have to, because I'm really, I would have to, I would have to read, I'd have to read everything again <laughs> to make an informed decision about that. Yeah. I mean, fair, they didn't, fair answer. Did, did they remake Pet Cemetery recently? They did. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fine. It, um, yeah. you know, the big hook on that one was that they, Ellie, Ellie Creed was the one that was buried in the cemetery versus Gage. Yeah. You know, which okay. I tell you what, I'd, I'd probably like right now in this moment, I would go for Christine. Really, because I love that book, and I do enjoy the film, but there's a lot more in the book, right? Yeah, and you, yeah, if you make a, Christine a yeah. Tesla, you know Teslas are <laughs> killing killing driving people left and right right now. So I wouldn't do that. Timely. I would just make. I would just make the book. I mean, that's. Tough because a lot of people really love that movie. Yeah, but I well, have I'll to tell conf- you, a Go frequent on. guest on our show is Brian Fuller, who got mm-hmm. signed to do a new version of Christine, and right. uh, we've read his script. It's it's great, and is just a, it it makes a change here and there, yeah. but mostly it's a straight up, you know, Christine adaptation, and that didn't end up getting made. Um, and my understanding is that maybe. Um, they wanted to change it in some ways. Yeah. And it got, I'm not going to say it got noted to death, but um, maybe they were looking for ways to modernize it. So hmm. I think if you, if you were going to make Christine these days, uh, I don't think Hollywood's looking for a straight up adaptation of that one, which is a horror no, fast and the furious. The just, just hear me out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> You know, man, I feel for that guy. It's such a trap. It's such an easy trap. And it's happened to me a couple of times where, where executives really want to do it. But when you get to that upper echelon level, that is actually capable of giving you the green light and the, and the rubber's really hitting the road in terms of economics and, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then you just get bounced back. But the executives don't are kind of in denial about that, that, reality so and that can keep you circling like a plane waiting to come into land sometimes for years because of this enthusiasm level that doesn't quite have enough power to translate that enthusiasm into 
a green light. An actual budget. Yeah, yeah. and right. man, that is really so one of the skills of the business I am just have discovered to know when to just uh, walk away. Mm-hmm. And also to smell out those projects that... <laughs> you, you know, see that coming a mile away. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's interesting and, and and all these kind of mid-level Stephen King adaptations are happening in a very different cinematic landscape, aren't they, where where it's okay to you know, did Cujo make money, I wonder? Was it a was it a hit? 22 million on the back of a 6 million dollar production budget. Yeah, there we go. Pretty good. It certainly got my my 14-year-old illegal cash (laughs) but um but you just can't you can't be middling like that anymore right no i mean i think what they do now is um they'll let you make a movie for hbo max and then maybe they'll just dump the whole goddamn thing in the trash can before it ever airs all right so i've i've never had any uh, desire to be working in the film industry like as a filmmaker as much as i love film and I'm for, I've never had less of an interest than right now. It seems like the toughest, most frustrating thing for, for filmmakers to be dealing with. And, you know, um, I would not want, I, I think that would just drive me crazy trying to, trying to balance creativity with the realities of this business that people in the business seem to only have a loose grasp on right now. Yeah. I think it was ever thus though. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was also working with Rebecca Ferguson on The Kid Who Would Be King. Right. And I, she had just shot Dr. Sleep, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she was telling me when we were on set together, she was saying, oh, I just did this amazing scene with this kid. <laughs> and uh, some of the shit they're making this kid do. He's amazing. And what an incredible actor. I forget what that actor's called. Jacob the Jacob's in room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was yeah, telling me about boy. the hat she was wearing. And she's a really, really brilliant actress. And I think that she does not get enough credit for Dune, for what she did in Dune. Oh, yeah. I think Agreed. she carries that film as as uh, sh- uh, Timothy's mum. Yeah. She's really the human emotional core of that film and really makes it work. And And she digs, you know, even in the kind of role I gave her in, Kitty Whippy King, where she's quite a sort of fairly straightforward villain, she really dug really deep. And we had, you know, she's a, and I don't know why I'm telling you this, just because she happens to be in a, in a Stephen King adaptation and she's somebody who I've worked with who's been in the Stephen King adaptation. But, um, but I think she's fantastic and particularly fantastic in Dune. And she was we'll cast really her in our well. remake where Tad's outside and there terrorizing her and, and her she little She would dog. be great as Donna Trenton. She, she could would absolutely be great. Do and in that. fact, that kid, he's aged out of it now. But maybe um maybe if someone digitally captured him avatar <laughs> style, <laughs> we could just get him out of the library and put him <laughs> in there. <laughs> I'm sure Jacob asset. Tremblay would be thrilled to have finally grown up. And then they're like, okay, um, we're gonna need you to be a kid again. So <laughs> that'd be such a bummer for an actor. He's gonna look like Joaquin Phoenix in that new Ari Aster movie. Yeah. Just right. <laughs> well, that would be good because then we could really that dog could really get his teeth into that face, that digital face. Oh yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Oof. All right, sign me up, DH Jacob Tremblay and Rebecca Ferguson. And, and maul him. <laughs> <laughs> 
on yeah. screen. That's what that's what we're maybe saying. you could use uh, maybe you could use what's that dog movie with the big dog? Clifford. Um, <laughs> no, you could use Clifford though. Like that, I was not thinking about Clifford. I was thinking about some other dopey Beethoven. Yeah, that's who I was thinking about. Okay, but Clifford is better because oh, yeah. I mean, you could fuck that red dog up with some rabies. <laughs> <laughs> so Ferguson's the mum. Tremblay, D.H. Tremblay is the kid, uh-huh. and Clifford, the big red dog, is this is you know now I'm getting excited again yeah, and I'm thinking an idea with this here, much folks. this is going to punch through the upper echelon of decision makers as well the yeah. top table oh, for sure. the top table is going to be flashing green lights <laughs> like there's no tomorrow yeah there's no not green lighting a, yeah. a pitch like that listen just... it feels very good to end this uh, podcast on the fact that we're going to be billionaires yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was really, our goal this whole time we're going really to pool our money ending. together and buy Twitter it'll be great yeah. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Joe, thank you so much for, for being here today. Once again, uh, Lockwood and co is hitting Netflix on January 27th. And, um, where, where can people find you online? Are you, do you monkey around with social media or do you, I have an Instagram. It's Mr. Joe Cornish. Uh, that's, that's it. I was going to sounded like I was going to say something else. I'm not on Twitter. No, I just have an Instagram, Mr. Joe Cornish with an MR. Very well. Um, well, we uh, yeah. we're excited to finish off uh, Lockwood and Co. And we're also really excited about whatever you do going forward. Um, we we love your work and uh, are really excited to see what we get out of you in the future. Guys, thank you so much for for having me. And you know, I didn't realize that we went so far back. I've I've been foolish. Oh, and, it's um, fine. And it's lovely to hear to 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 hear you again and be in touch again. Thank you very much for having me. Many thanks to Joe Cornish for joining us for that rousing conversation over Cujo. And also, I might add, many thanks to Blumhouse Productions for sponsoring this episode for their current VOD title, There's Something Wrong with the Children. Yeah, the uh, terms of this ad read were not, you know, super explicit. So we're going <laughs> to go over, over and above, yeah. you know, what is expected of us and Again, remind you that this episode was brought to you by Roxanne Benjamin's There's Something (laughs) Wrong with the Children, a movie you should watch as soon as humanly possible. Now, with that said, what have we got going on in the main fiend next week? Well, next week we're going to be talking about the end of the world, specifically the end of the whole mess, a short story that Stephen King wrote about uh, an apocalypse and we might be timing that with a pending release of a movie kind of maybe about the end of the world too. Mm -hmm. You never know. And our guest might be somebody associated with that, that particular movie that might be coming out. So let's just call it what it is. It's knock at the cabin and we have someone associated with knock at the cabin uh, coming on for uh, to be our guest. Uh, as this movie hits theaters. And if you're thinking it's M. Night, I'm sorry, we tried, but wasn't happening. Yep, we got a polite pass from M. Night yet again. One Twice. of these days, we will we will get Night on the show. <laughs> One of these but... days. I'm giving up that fucking dream. <laughs> they are just not on board with whatever we are selling, and that is fine. M. Night, <laughs> I still love you. I know, you're a, I know you're a Stephen King fan. If only your PR people would actually tell you about this. So we can on the show. <laughs> uh, but we did get somebody uh, of of interest to uh, the listeners who might know this story uh, to come in and talk about the movie, to talk about 
maybe something that predated the movie. You never know. And uh, we've pretty much said exactly who the <laughs> the guest is uh, at this point. You can probably guess uh, he has been on the show before. Uh, we love having him back. And uh, this is a particularly interesting episode about a story that not a lot of people, I think, know very well within the King short story pantheon. It's not quite the uh-huh. like the mist or, you know, one of the crouch and or these giant, you know, right. kind of behemoth stories. So, right. So it's a fun, fun one to kind of dig into, um, especially uh, considering they did do an adaptation of this in the that Nightmares and Dreamscapes uh, TNT series, which, you know, Scott, the more that we do this show, the more I'm convinced that that um, TNT series is kind of like the the Six phone degrees booth. Of, uh, no, or, I was going to say it's like the phone booth and uh, fucking Doctor Who, where I swear to God, there's only like six adaptations, but we keep finding more in there. The, yeah, it's like true, suddenly right? that that series has like 18 fucking adaptations in it. <laughs> yeah, I think they did a carry at some point yeah, that we're going to have to talk about. Yeah, it's uh, it's not a great series. And this wasn't a great episode of the series. Right. But the story is really interesting. And we get into all the nitty gritty on the end of the world, how we feel about that, what shape that might take. And, uh, you know, some of the other work from our our esteemed guest who will who will be joining us next week. And this week on the Kingcast Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash the Kingcast, please go sign up immediately. Um, we have a guest who's coming on to sort of, uh, echo, maybe a couple of the things that we talked about in this episode of the show. Um, Brett Arnold, who is a, uh, film critic for Yahoo and a number of other places. Uh, he's also the host of the new flesh podcast, the, uh, Roger Ebert and me podcast. Vespi and I have both been on the new flesh mm-hmm. show. He's coming on to discuss single location horror. You know, which Cujo definitely qualifies for, mm-hmm. um, or at least that was the idea. the uh, The idea <laughs> on the this episode was like, we'll talk about single location horror in relation to Stephen King, which would qualify a number of titles. You know, Cujo, maybe Misery, maybe The Shining, but this may be one of the most off topic <laughs> bonus episodes we have ever done because it spirals into like fifty different directions. the The minute we unlock. Uh, the chamber on this bad boy. Uh, <laughs> I loved uh, having this conversation. Um, whether or not it's completely on topic is up to you. And uh, we don't want to hear about it either way. Going into this one, this isn't going to be a lecture or, you know, some sort of deep analytical thing. This is going to be more of a party conversation. Just uh, go into it with that expectation. And uh, um, I think you'll have fun. I had fun. I think it's a rousing conversation. It's just we tend to take uh those blind alleyways we love tend to be the main <laughs> uh path on our journey versus the <laughs> the topic at hand right uh, but that happens sometimes it's conversations that's how it works yeah it actually got me to thinking about whether or not we could get away with talking about other stuff as bonus episodes hmm. which is a question we will have to you know put up to our patrons on the kingcast patreon that is once again patreon.com backslash the kingcast um, maybe we'll we'll ask them over there, like if they're open to us kind of branching out a little bit or uh, maybe we'll ask on the discord, which is fucking thriving, by the way. Mm. Uh, we launched that thing and uh, I check in a few times a day and there's always some shit going on in there. Um, anywho, 
uh, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Yep. So. So you better like it. Yeah. Or else. Like it or else. Yeah. Exactly. Knuckle sandwich. Um, All right. So next week on the main feed, we will be discussing the end of the whole mess. And uh, this Friday, single location horror, kind of, (laughs) on uh, on our Patreon. (laughs) All right, folks. We'll see you next week. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Thank you.